Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering all things blockchain, cryptocurrencies, NFTs, DeFi, DAOs, you name it, we're covering it. But there's one catch. We focus on the legal framework surrounding blockchains. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. On this episode of the podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking with Eric Dylas. Eric is an attorney and a Solidity coder who is full-time counsel and consultant for API3, which is a DAO that's legally wrapped as the API3 Foundation, focused on building open source software and standards for connecting APIs to Web 3.0 and decentralized applications in a decentrally governed GDPR compliant, which we'll get to, and quantifiably secure manner. Eric is also a member of and contributor to LexDAO and LexPunkDAO, which are decentral organizations operating in the legal space regarding blockchain. In this conversation, we had a great chat about the GDPR and EU privacy laws, as well as the legal future of DAOs, first-party oracles, and what young coders should do if they're interested in learning more about Solidity and legal engineering. All right, today we have with us Eric Dylas. Eric, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to picking your brain about API 3, uh, along with it. We'll talk some GDPR and the other stuff you're working on. Um, so thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. All right. Um, so usually I like to start with sort of the genesis block, I call it, where you were first introduced to blockchain technology. Typically with people, it's Bitcoin. Um, I was wondering if you could explain where you first heard of blockchain technologies and how you became sort of interested in this area. Yeah, so I, I think similar to a, a lot of people in this space, it's hard to uh, pin down the exact genesis block without some, you know, immutable record of it. But uh, so I, I was an econ undergrad and had some computer science aspirations uh, and was just interested in kind of alternatives to the, the status quo and and I you know I, I probably picked up a Nick Zabo article here and there at the beginning um, you know I, Bitcoin white paper of course was a great read um, and then you know fell into the ethereum rabbit hole with uh, Vitalik's writings and and what was a pretty niche uh, community in the beginning uh, just discussing sort of broad possibilities and ways that this technology can kind of uproot things. And I started to realize that this was possibly the most interesting economic and or computer science experiment possibly ever. Um, so, you know, I think I spent a couple of years just sort of checking in, trying to learn a bit, just seeing how things are progressing, um, you know, 2015, 2016, that, that sort of time. And then 2017-ish, um, you know, I was a transactional attorney 
and I, as, as any associate <laughs> in the transactional uh, sort of practice can attest, you know, you, you have a lot of sort of administrative and, and menial tasks around deals closing and funds being wired and, and uh, you know, getting some sort of proof of conditions being satisfied before a deal closes. And I started to kind of let my mind wander where my job could be automated or, and or should be automated and just ways that blockchain technology can really encroach upon the legal profession and, and just transaction of value and, and storage of truth generally. So, I, but I, I think the turning point for me was uh, a specific deal that had me up at two or three in the morning, several nights in a row, um, you know, waiting to get local banking hours aligned. And um, my, my primary practice was aviation finance. So this was an aircraft fleet deal and it was dependent upon several airlines. You know, there were all these objective conditions, but conditions that had to line up and be satisfied and to then trigger the deal closing. So, uh, you know, it just directly flowed into sort of blockchain technology, Oracle technology, and um, also just <laughs> frustration with the status quo of the banking uh, system. You know, I can relate to that. I think anyone who's ever had to pay school tuition or send money to a friend can attest to the inefficiencies that blockchain can uh, fix. So then when you, you graduated law school and you started working at big law, while you were working at big law, did you have a chance to do blockchain related work or were you doing this all on the side? It was definitely all on the side. Uh, I was fortunate to work with a, a partner to that. They were certainly interested in it um, from like a curiosity standpoint and, and also maybe a legal theory uh, standpoint. Like I did a lot of UCC work and um, some of the partners I worked for um, were interested in, uh, you know, how the UCC encapsulates these things or addresses these things. But in terms of actual uh, hands-on work, uh, not, not quite. It was all spare time um, learning hacking through things. Uh, and then, you know, as you can probably tell, that spare time turned into un unavoidable full-time. <laughs> yeah, what was that transition like when you went from being big law, which I think a lot of, I'm sure, friends and family found admirable, and then you sort of go into this crypto rabbit hole where they're not really sure what you're doing, and they're like, oh, shit, you know, he's making a big move. What was that transition like for you in terms of relationships and then even your, your professional professional side? Yeah, so uh, personal relationship-wise, uh, you know, explaining to uh, my extended family and my in-laws what I was doing was probably more difficult than any illegal work I'd, I'd ever done. You know, it is extremely difficult to parse this stuff down sometimes, even more so than you know, really niche regulations or whatever it may be. But <laughs> I, I eventually figured out a good analogy for what API 3 builds, which is a, a data translator. So, uh, you know, I'll get to this in a second, but the, the, the best, like, sort of lowest level analogy I could come up with was, you know how you can do speak to text on your phone, you say something to the microphone and then text comes out and you can send a text. You know, there's some sort of uh, hardware, of course, that a microphone that senses the vibrations and translates that to digital information, but that digital information has to be translated to text. So that translation piece of software is kind of what API 3 is building for APIs to blockchains. And then, of course, it's what's an API, what's a blockchain. So, you know, spirals out of control. <laughs> but um, in terms of professionally, 
a lot of the people I worked with had one of two reactions. The first being, you know, that's great. I know you're extremely interested in this. Like anytime you have a passion, if you're able to do it full time, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, and the other uh, half being those that didn't know how interested I was in, in this technology, in this space, uh, saying something effective. Yeah, yeah, you always seemed like uh, <laughs> kind of out there or like the, the, the traditional path wasn't for you. Like, I'll take that compliment, I suppose. So. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And was it, uh, was there a steep learning curve for you or how did you maybe navigate that learning curve going from, you know, the traditional big law where you're doing a lot of research and back end stuff to basically being the guy? Yeah, I, I would say that my, my path was a, a little atypical because I was fortunate to know a lot of the, the founding builders of API3 for uh, over a year, probably two years, just from a multitude of things, everything from casual conversations and, and sort of like-minded, you know, future tech groups to uh, really specific conversations on how Oracle should work and, and how um, you can get the incentives aligned and have um, transparent structures and, and why decentralized governance is necessary, that sort of thing. So I had an existing relationship with, with uh, you know, the, the people that I would eventually be working full time with. And the, the other atypical thing was I didn't really do crypto related work in my law firm job. So that was that, that was a bit of a shift because, you know, there aren't a ton of, or at least there weren't a ton of, you know, specifically crypto uh, designed regulations or, or laws uh, beyond, um, well, you know, without getting into specific sectors, I, it was just more so applying the thinking on my uh, previous firm job in, in the different ways that my practice group touched various areas of the law to uh, how that's approached in um, a sector where you have a permissionless uh, way to transact and, and send information and um, you know, just adapting that knowledge in some way, which I suppose is no different, but uh, I, I didn't really have a transition period between uh, doing it at the firm level where, you know, you're an associate and uh, you have specific tasks and responsibilities that are probably a little more specifically designated than when you're working for a, a protocol or a DAO or, or whatever it may be. And, and you are the go-to for anything even resembling something legal. So, um, you know, it takes a flexible outlook and the uh, ability to do extra research or, or reach out for things that you're not personally familiar with. Yeah. So for young lawyers who are thinking of making a similar transition, could you describe and I, I'm sure there's no typical day uh, with what you're doing now, but could you describe maybe a, a common day that you have or maybe how you'd schedule your day so that people could have an idea of maybe what they'd be getting into if they followed a path similar to yours? So uh, just to back up a bit. So I am the full-time counsel for API3, which is building first-party uh, Oracle software. Um, and so what that entails is... API3 is a decentralized autonomous organization. Um, our governance contract is, is live on Ethereum mainnet as of a couple weeks ago, um, as of the recording of this podcast. So, you know, there's, there's an aspect to the organization or the organization is fully on chain in terms of how it is governed um, in the parameters and, and 
distribution of grant funding to um, you know contractors who help to build the software or evangelize the product or do business development to grow the network, that sort of thing. So because of the sort of bi-directional nature of API 3, where you are discussing how the technology works and integrating the technology to traditional API providers, traditional data providers um, that are, you know, legacy meat space entities, companies, and the other side being uh, decentralized applications and Web3 users, there, there's just, not, you can't do everything on chain to start. It's just not possible. And you, you're not going to find many uh, legacy data providers that are okay with contracting with the DAO being the, the counterparty. So API3's uh, legal entity wrapper is a foundation, um, which is a common structure choice for a lot of crypto protocols or groups. Ours is a Cayman Islands foundation because there's a good amount of precedent there and, and uh, it's, it, the structure just fits super well. Um, it's a familiar jurisdiction for, uh, you know, especially for um, companies that have some sort of uh, funding mechanism, VC funded, like some connection there. It's, it's extremely popular as a jurisdiction. So uh, having the foundation wrapper is a, is a way to harmonize the meat space laws and regulations with the on-chain governance and mission and, you know, have a counterparty for these data providers to deal with and, and contract with. So getting back to your question, now that I've talked in circles for a while, I spend uh, a lot of my time um, so far has been a lot of drafting, negotiating meat space legal agreements um, where the foundation is a counterparty. So that can be, you know, letters of intent, um, that can be uh, for especially larger data providers and enterprises who want to do some testing or, you know, do a proof of concept using the software. It can be a non-disclosure agreement. You know, there are contractor agreements, there are license agreements. So traditional, uh, somewhat traditional <laughs> legal agreements where your typical law school training, legal training fully comes into play. Um, you know, there's, there's not much different other than, of course, understanding how things are going to be used and additional implications of permissionless technology. But uh, th so there's a lot of that. Uh, there's also a lot of uh, just researching all of the different regulatory developments, uh, constantly changing. You may have to go an extra step or two to, to really determine whether, like, the terms being used as defined are like the intent matches up with the, the actual text, whether it, there's just, uh, you're drinking from a fire hose at all, at all times in, in a job like this. So you're, you're trying to prioritize, but you're trying to learn as much as possible and um, support everyone you can who's building on, on the project. And, and just as sort of like a more practical aside. Uh, so I'm East coast U S time zone. So I think that's UTC minus five. Uh, a lot of our developers and, Business developers are EU, um, some South Africa, some um, you know Asian time zone. So you know, I, I usually wake up to a good good deal of uh, messages on requests or whatnot, and you know, it, it can be early afternoon, and and most of the others are signing off, and you're kind of like, okay, now I can do a little extra research or or work now that it's like a bit quiet. <laughs> I can imagine it leads to some long days. Um, working, yeah, working like that. I so, love it. Oh yeah. Well, and, and if it's something you're interested in, I'm sure it doesn't feel like work. There's days where 
most people would consider, oh, you worked such a long day, but for you, the time flies because you're learning something that's interesting to you. Um, in terms of API 3, I'd love to learn a bit more about maybe the two-minute introduction for how you'd explain it to someone who isn't as familiar with uh, blockchain technologies, and then a bit more about how you're implementing it, because I think the whole Oracle space is such an interesting one and something that will be so important because you can only go so far into code until you have to get back to the real world and, and bridging those two gaps is something that that's really important. Absolutely. So generally API three is, is addressing the, what was previously broadly termed as the Oracle problem, which I think API three is narrowed to the API connectivity problem, which is connecting traditional web APIs to blockchains, decentralized applications, web three. So what that entails is, as I kind of analogized before, a sort of translation layer. And there, there are, of course, several ways that this can be done, but API 3's mission and its Aeronode software kind of arose from a frustration with the status quo of uh, Oracle structures and software and uh, crypto economics or lack thereof. So one of the, one of the primary issues in the status quo is the sort of obfuscated provenance of data. And that, that can lead to, you know, all kinds of problems in, in sort of calculating what exactly is a acceptably deviating answer or what's, you know, correct in quotes or, you know, what, what can, what should be accepted. And that sort of issue of data provenance kind of leads to, other problems where you have uh, an Oracle layer that is a layer of third party um, translators um, through nodes that are unrelated to where the data originates. So API 3 sort of coined this terminology of a first party Oracle versus a third party Oracle. And yeah, the, the simple idea is that a, a first party Oracle is an Oracle that is run or deployed from the entity or or controller that has a legal right to that data. And so that would be the first party. The third party would be a third party node operator or translator that receives the data from the first party or the origin, and then either repackages or, or just in some way translates and then resells that data to the end user or the end application. So as you can probably tell, there's all kinds of inefficiencies in the third party structure. There's a middleman tax, both in um, cost and sort of premium put on top of the data and they're um, legally in, in, in terms of terms and conditions breaches for uh, the, the data origination. There's a data resale issue there. A lot of these terms and conditions from data providers don't permit resale of their data for obvious reasons. It's theirs and they're selling it and uh, you know, they should be uh, receiving the benefit of the bargain for that. So that, that is um, a big one. The second big one is that the third-party node architecture that's out there um, is pretty cumbersome and uh, surprisingly unpredictable for um, those that are running the nodes. And whether that's a third-party or a, a first-party node that requires crypto to be staked um, for you know, providing some sort of reputational guarantee of the data or, or uptime or whatever it may be. But the, the architecture that's out there is, is pretty heavy um, and, again, requires crypto know-how and 
buying and using and uh, receiving crypto, which is problematic for a lot of data providers. And so the API3 software, Airnode, addresses this by, by being um, a crypto-free um, and serverless node. So it's deployed right alongside where an API provider would traditionally deploy their API gateway to kind of lessen that friction and remove that need to rely on staked crypto and, and maintaining their own crypto node all the time. They can kind of set it and then let it, then forget about it, let it kind of self-heal and, and get activated anytime there's a data request. So, so that explanation was a little technical, but <laughs> sorry about that. But um, and the last sort of reason for API3's um, mission in the AirNode software structure is the sort of centralized governance problem and uh, lack of true crypto economic incentives or security in, in what's out there now. And so, you know, if, if you have a product that is feeding data to a decentralized application or, or to a, a public blockchain and, you know, you've, you've done what I've mentioned so far and you've, you've gotten some data provenance down and then you have this data, which is sort of fungible, which can be combined with other types of data to produce um, a more resilient data product because you have multiple sources. You know, if you, if you, uh, if you're building that sort of decentralized, what, what we call a decentralized API, if you're building a decentralized API that aggregates data from multiple sources and spits out uh, sort of feed, you want the construction of that feed to be transparent because you not only want provenance of the data to be clear, but the sort of weighting of the data and how it's combined to be clear. And then you want some sort of, uh, you know, where you can some sort of security guarantee for the user if at all possible. And so API3 has um, an insurance product in development, which allows users of data to uh, pay for insurance on the data feed in the event there's, um, you know, something goes awry outside of the provider's terms and conditions or outside of the applicable, uh, applicable parameters of that data feed. So a lot going on there, but it, it's uh, really a project and protocol that's built upon um, transparent to centrally governed uh, data translation from off-chain to on-chain. Those are some of the most interesting projects that I've heard about going on in crypto. And I think it's very cool that you're working on them and building out those protocols, especially with your legal background, being able to provide some insight into how this could work and what we could, which legacy systems we could use or incorporate best practices from. Um, in terms of the incentives, because I find that is the best way to predict behaviors. Okay, what, where are the nodes incentivized? Where are the parties incentivized? How do you think about incentivizing the different uh, participants on the chain to, to act in a manner that is uh, beneficial to everyone and, and aligns with, you know, what you're building at with Airnode. Yeah. So it's, it's all about this sort of innate incentives, right? So this idea of decentralized governance and having a, a sort of insured pool of the governance tokens, which, is, is how the insurance um, mechanism will work for API 3. The governance stakers will, uh, their stake tokens are, are committed to the insurance pool, the collateral pool for the, the data feeds, which are covered by this insurance. So 
that incentive is inherently to govern and structure feeds that are resilient and have high reputation data providers and, you know, aren't, aren't uh, ensuring or securing more than they should be, you know, that, that sort that sort of thing. So in, in that way, it's kind of a, a, a simple but um, understandable incentive system where other, you know, if you don't have the sort of transparent structuring, the on-chain aggregation and the, the, the quantified security through the insurance, there's some point in the stack where you're just hoping, I mean, obviously hoping no, nothing goes wrong, but also hoping that if something goes, does go wrong, someone does reimbursement or, you know, someone doesn't get chased uh, legally in the meat space. So it's, you know, and I know we're going to go on to talk about GDPR, but uh, transparency and kind of lessening information asymmetry is kind of uh, a, a sort of cardinal aim for a lot of laws and regulations generally. And when you're able to bake it into the protocol and into the, the governance um, natively and, and um, permissionlessly, it's I think it's very powerful. And I think it's also pretty attractive. I completely agree. And I'm looking forward to seeing how this plays out over the next couple months and the next years, I'm sure it will be very widespread and it'll be a very interesting project to test these game theory incentives in the real world. Now, as you alluded to, we, we will talk about the GDPR and EU privacy laws. And I thought it was interesting that you were working on something to address these, despite the fact that you are based in the U S uh, could you explain to me why you chose to look at the GDPR and how that relates to API 3. And for those who, who aren't aware, the GDPR is essentially the European Union's privacy le- legislation. Um, so rules on what consu- or what um, data, the entities that accumulate users' data can do with that data. So where do they have to store it? Where can they sell it? What do they have to allow the users to delete? And, and I think that's a big part of blockchain and the issues that I wrote a paper on was what do you do with an immutable system that's very transparent because there's the benefit of the users knowing what's happening with their data, but the downside of the users not being able to delete any of the data. So that was a long-winded explanation by me, basically just to ask you the question is how you sort of landed on the GDPR uh, for relating to your business. So I think uh, a, a lot of people can attest that when GDPR was, uh, you know, went live, everyone kind of heard about it. Anyone, anyone with sort of some commercial involvement heard about it in some way, even if it was just uh, some sort of disclaimer on, on your own personal usage of products. Uh, the, the reason why it, it, it's pretty onerous and, and it was just a pretty landmark uh, development for data generally. And when you're building something that inherently deals in, in data and data transmission, uh, it, I, I think you need to start from a, compliant structure. Um, otherwise, you're going to be constantly asking whether something can or should be built the way that it is. And it just makes things um, simpler and, and honestly, a much, much easier sell to data providers to say like, hey, this is, you know, we enlisted this um, GDPR certification service and our AirNode structure is, is uh, GDPR compliant as, you know, as, as of the date that it was submitted. So, with public blockchains, GDPR is, it's tough to harmonize in some ways, right? So you want to uh, do as little harm as, as possible and 
in sort of creating new products with respect to data and uh, maintaining um, compliance with the GDPR is a good way of, of sort of saying like, you know, everywhere, every jurisdiction has different uh, treatment of personal data and, and privacy and that sort of thing. But if you're complying with the GDPR, there's a very, very good chance you're complying with m most other uh, applicable regs. Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting way to think of it, that it's almost the gold standard where if you meet this criteria, you're bound to have met the criteria in any other jurisdiction. So that way it's it's a a good landmark and to say, okay, if we aim for this, it'll be much easier for us to deal with regulators across the world. And then you don't have to build different products. You can build one main one and maybe adjust it as you see fit as you enter different jurisdictions. Um, in terms of the GDPR, are there certain aspects of it that you've focused on or you've found more important? I mentioned the um, eraser laws um, were, were something that I was interested in and found uh, difficult to overcome. Were, were those your main focus or were there other aspects of the GDPR? Um, maybe you could just talk about a couple that you, you looked at. Yeah, so... GDPR compliance is important for all e-commerce, right? But it's especially important for data providers whose core business is impacted by these rules and you know is in the back of their mind constantly. So by introducing an API gateway to Web3 that's already compliant and has this sort of structure in mind, you remove a huge barrier to entry to these new markets and you're able to get the conversation going by starting out with, we're not here to upend your, you know, GDPR, you know, your compliance department, like, <laughs> that's, that's not, it's not what's happening here. And the way that Aeronode uh, helps with this, you know, it, you avoid the sort of middlemen and, and data leak honeypots by keeping data providers control over their feeds and their access parameters to their APIs since they deploy the Aeronodes. So by starting out with uh, not introducing a third party that takes and uh, redistributes their data, it's important. Um, and then, you know, as I mentioned before, the, the DAO governance, uh, the transparency and feed structuring, that's, that flows directly into the sort of GDPR rights of access and information on how information is being used or data is being processed. You know, I, I, what amounts to personal data is constantly up, up for debate. Um, so, you know, like when you can just let data providers do their job in what is and isn't personal data for what they're serving and just say like, here's some software that you can deploy to blockchains uh, for users in Web3 as well. Like let them continue their diligence without uh, um, impacting it really beyond, you know, the, the sort of permissionless um, and, and public nature of, of some of the end products. Just making them aware and, and saying and educating on how um, some end users will be using it or ways they can whitelist certain addresses, that sort of thing. The, the other thing is the Web3 economy is, is doing nothing but increasing and accelerating. And, you know, if, if you don't use a first-party structure like the Airnode uh, and you use a third-party structure, and that GDPR compliance there is, I mean... I would say close to impossible, but at a bare minimum, it is extremely difficult to scale uh, because you you have to do due diligence and uh, KYC and, and just all kinds of legwork on that Oracle node operator 
and how it's receiving and repackaging data and, and what it's doing, you know, whether it maintains a database, whether it maintains any sort of uh, repository that is, um, you know, public or not, or, you know, just what it's doing. There's <laughs> just, uh, that's the sort of data controller um, or processor uh, aspect that is directly um, treated by GDPR. And, and when you can avoid that by using first party air nodes, it's extremely beneficial. <laughs> I can imagine what a disaster it would be if you had to determine who had access to this data. And now all of a sudden you have these third party nodes that all have access, but they're sort of mining the blocks and they're securing the chain. But at the same time, they do have access to the underlying data or typically would. So then you'd, it would just be an absolute mess from GDPR perspective. So was this, did you start from first principles and work backwards to coming up with the idea of using these first party air nodes? Was that the process or was it more so let's do these first party air nodes? Oh, look, it, it works really well with this idea. So I think um, from discussions with some of the, the developers and the founding uh, API3 folks, um, I would say that it arose out of a combination of like a nagging feeling that something is just commercially undesirable or next to impossible in bringing on data providers uh, because the predecessor to API 3 uh, was basically setting up an API marketplace for um, a third-party Oracle structure. And the commercial difficulty there, there were so many lessons learned, right? And it got to a point where I, I think the understanding was just like, this is not going to work at scale. It has to be, you have to start over and you have to build an Oracle software that delivers data uh, first party. And then, you know, as smart as they all are, uh, you know, they're able to do it in a way that is deployed as a serverless function. And so data providers also don't need to run full nodes with crypto. And that combination is massive. You know, and I, uh, disregarding the other structural benefits, like that combination is, is I don't see how you could have a better structure than that in terms of commercial viability, compliance, ease of access and lowering barriers, and just generally making things as frictionless as, as possible. Uh, so in some sense, it was a working backwards, but at the same time, can't guess whether or not a light bulb went off or it was uh, weeks and weeks of, you know, thinking of something in the shower and then quickly writing it down. But uh, compliance focused from the beginning, no doubt. Right. And it seems like it's, there was a problem that was identified and then a solution was brought to market, so to speak, to, to address that. And I think that's something that many crypto projects and DAOs often get wrong where it's, oh, let's just build the DAO because it's cool to do. Let's have a token because it'd be nice to have a token and we'll make some money where if you look and say, what is the problem you're solving? Why should this be on chain? Because there's so many things you can do off chain. And if, unless you're solving major inefficiency problems, there really isn't much reason to put it on chain. It's on chain when you have specific things that you're solving, such as what you guys are uh, doing at API 3, which I think is, is awesome and very cool. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing that grow and seeing the team grow as well. Um, now, in terms of the laws 
in the US and, and in North America in general and, and even around the world, are there ones that you're particularly keeping an eye on, maybe any cases or any government regulations that you're expecting to see or that you have seen recently um, that will affect the, the technology and, and the API 3 and specifically? Where to begin? <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's when you have an industry that's this new and, and development is happening so fast that, you know, even as someone who is doing this full time, I can't possibly keep up with everything that's being created and adapted. And, you know, it's this, this is uh, a technology that can touch just about any aspect of law if you try hard enough to connect it. And, you know, regulators, many are willing to learn. Um, some shoot first and ask questions later. Uh, so there, there is some prioritization that you need to do in terms of like, uh, here's areas of law that match up pretty obviously to, to what's being created. Like the analogy is a little bit more direct than other areas of law. Um, of course, we've talked about data privacy. That was a huge one um, with Oracle's. And the, but then you get into other things like what really is a custodial obligation uh, how does that arise? How is it disclaimed um, in terms of value that's being transferred? Are you a virtual asset service provider if you know you're just redirecting to a third party, you know, rather than uh, facilitating trading? Or you know, they're like I could go on forever. Um, but the the short answer is everyone hears about the U.S. a lot because the regulators are many and well funded, <laughs> and you know it's. We have a different regulator for commodities and futures than we do for securities. We have it's, we have no shortage of regulatory uh, reach and power. So the U.S. is in everyone's minds because it's uh, pretty vocal and the long arm reaches just about everywhere. But you know, at the same time, API three is uh, we have very few Americans. Um, in, in just in terms of how we approached the project, it was not America uh, law centric because you, you're building something that connects to permissionless global technology. So you shouldn't be, it, it's hard to, it's hard to um, point to a specific uh, area of law, either civil or criminal that really is uh, at the forefront of our, our minds in, in terms of like things we are, concerned about, not concerned about addressing the future, other than, um, as I mentioned before, kind of a do as little harm as possible in terms of creating new obfuscated uh, things that, that, that regulators don't like. Like a lot of regulation is, it comes from a useful and, and good purpose. And a lot of it has to deal with, as I mentioned before, information asymmetry between actors and general public or users uh, or constructors and users. And if you can build something that's uh, that maintains a lot of the status quo legalities and incentives like Airnode does by um, preserving basically the entire economic and incentive and, and compliant structure of, of data providers providing data in exchange, in exchange for value, you know, it, it's, it's not as worrying as, as some of the, let's say DeFi protocols that have all kinds of, um, you know, name, <laughs> name your regulatory agency issues. So 
with that said, like anything involved in blockchain comes with an inherent level of uncertainty, but API three is, is, uh, it, it touches far fewer areas of the law than, than some of the real renegade DeFi stuff does. And I think that's a, a smart approach because in an area where so many people are of the mindset, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. If you don't have to ask for either, they're not going to be upset with you. You'll have a better relationship with regulators. They'll be more welcoming uh, as well as clients too, right? It, it, not just the regulators. It, it's easier to work for everyone. So I, I think that's incredible and, and a very smart move. Now, just to sort of pivot to coding, uh, because I really admire all the work you've done in terms of developing code and especially on Solidity. Uh, I think after going to law school, the last thing most people want to do is learn anything else, but you've sort of taught yourself Solidity, at least, at least that's sort of how I've seen it. And I think you really understand how it works and, and you, you're a very talented coder and a hard worker in that sense. So I was wondering if you could maybe give a short description or, or a path that you took to get to the position you are in terms of your coding ability and what you would recommend other people do to, to get to that level as well. Sure. Well, that's, first of all, it's very kind. I, I consider myself, I consider myself still very new at Solidity. So, um, but no, I, I just, I find it so interesting and I, I kind of liken it to the, um, you know, back in the earlier school days, how people kind of decide whether they like, uh, like language or like math and science. So something that has like some subjectivity versus objectivity. And I kind of see that with uh, the law and code. So like, obviously there's some black letter law and there's some statutory, there's uh, civil law where, you know, it, the parameters are clear, the outcomes are clear, whatnot. But, you know, in common law, you know, outcomes might not be quite as clear between jurisdictions, between uh, precedent, whatever may have you. Code is uh, pretty direct. If you get it wrong, it spits out an error message and slaps you right in the face. So um, if I had to credit one person, it would be Ross Campbell of, uh, well, now Sushi, form, um, Lexdal, of course, and formerly of... Uh, I guess, open law and other stuff that he worked on. But, um, you know, he messaged me at the beginning of last year and he was like, I think I'm going to try and get some of the Lexdial members to really dive deep. And uh, I was like, I, I would love to do that. So uh, then, of course, lockdown happened and I decided to uh, push myself and do sort of 100 days of code challenge, which is a, I don't know, where or when it started, but the, it's a very simple concept. You do an hour of coding each day, which is obviously filled with errors and Googling things, why things went wrong, and you record what you did that day and keep yourself accountable for 100 days. And I did that with Solidity, and I, um, so I put all of my materials up on GitHub for others to, to use because I, I thought they were really helpful, and it's just nice to have uh, a repo of these free materials to learn and, uh, you know, Solidity is, it's growing so fast in terms of developers and it's so new that everyone is so welcoming and uh, willing to help and uh, give some pointers on how things work. And, and it's helped me by just kind of expanding my mind on, on how things are done in practice and how things are truly put into code in deterministic uh, fashion and, and things that can and can't be 
directly automated on chain or that sort of thing. So it, I've just really enjoyed it, but, uh, you know, still learning every day and it's, it's great. Yeah. yeah. Ross is, is very helpful too. I spoke with him earlier today a bit about, um, coding, getting started on Solidity and how to go about learning through Remix. Um, and what was your GitHub uh, address? I'll link to it in the, in the show notes description so people could check out the hundred days and, Oh, sure. Yeah. I'll, uh, I can send you the links, but it's, it's just uh, GitHub slash my name, but I, yeah, I'll, I'll send you a link to the repo. We'll put that in the show notes. Cause that, that will be very interesting. Um, and then in terms of when you learned to code, did you go through remix? Did you use remix uh, exclusively or did you try crypto zombies? Were there any specific ones? Maybe you could mention one. Um, that, that definitely. Yeah, I did. I definitely started with crypto zombies and I think it's a great place to start. Um, you know, the lessons are broken down nicely. You can do them over and over again. Uh, it gets progressively more complicated, I guess. And, you know, you have, uh, an answer key right there. It's, it's a great way to start. Um, I think it's a great tool. So I, I think I started with that and then I started to see what simple things I could do on my own. And then eventually did something that was so complicated. I, I had no, I got completely lost. And so I went back to just the solidity docs. There's solidity by example.org, which is great. Open Zeppelin has just a billion materials, which are so helpful. Um, yeah. I, I mean, there's no, and Austin Griffiths um, stuff. Uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll send the link with the full list of everything that I, uh, used in some way, but there's there's a ton of open source stuff out there to to help. And Remix, I I personally used only Remix just because I liked layout and and how you know the error messages pop up after compiling. You know you can address them right there. You know it has a in browser sort of virtual machine, or you can use the injected Web three from MetaMask or whatever it may be. So, um, so I, I, I use pretty much only Remix and took notes on GitHub. Yeah, there's there's so many good resources. And I think the community's been incredible too. That was what I was most impressed about when I joined. I joined Twitter a couple months ago and I started talking and getting to know people and everyone was both friendly but also encouraging. As you mentioned, Ross is really helpful saying, oh, I'll, I'll help you. You know, what, where do you have questions? We can walk through it because it's, it's almost like looking up at a giant mountain and having no idea how you're going to make it up. But if someone's, oh, here's a path, you know, and, and they're willing to guide you and help you out and, and offer positive support, it makes it much easier. Um, and everyone's so welcoming too. So for any young um, lawyers or law students interested in the space, I definitely recommend reaching out to people because that, I mean, that's what I've been doing and I found it very helpful. Now, in terms of the legal future of DAOs, that was one thing I was interested in speaking with you because I know you've written a bit about, you know, smart contracts and DAOs and how, how they all operate. Are there specific legal issues that you think will be very interesting to resolve? Maybe you could just mention one that you find really interesting. Um, I know a lot of lawyers are talking about the classification of DAOs as either a partnership or a club, so then, or a charity or a foundation. Um, are there other aspects of the law that you're thinking come into play here, or is your main focus on the classification? Yeah, I think the initial question of uh, classification of, of DAOs that don't have a corresponding legal entity is an important one. But I think the decision to use a legal wrapper, a legal entity wrapper or not, and in what to what extent is 
a huge area and, and we're doing a lot of work on this at LexDAO and LexPunkDAO to kind of push some standards on legal engineering and, and DAO legalities and standards. Yeah, so I, I mean, the initial consideration is whether something can or should be accomplished using a DAO or whether the concept of a DAO is uh, in name only, right? And if so, do you want to have an explicit legal wrapper? Like, do you want to form a legal entity um, to either fully wrap the DAO, so to have the entity fully correspond to the DAO, or to have it um, be like an instructive wrapper where the DAO instructs a legal entity in some way or is like the member of a legal entity? Uh, if so, which kind, which jurisdiction? So much, you know, so much to be done here. And also another question, very timely with uh, Maker, if the eventual, eventual intention is to dissolve the legal wrapper, you know, if the material elements of the DAO or whatever the DAO is building or controlling, if they can be decided and, and or affected directly by on-chain vote, uh, maybe that dissolution goal is a good one. Um, if not, perhaps dissolution would open the sort of Pandora, the Pandora's box of, of unknowns and potential joint several liabilities or whatever issues there may be to uh, the sort of DAO classifications that you've alluded to before. But um, there's a, a ton of work to be done, no doubt. And it's going to be, a lot of it's pretty case by case. Um, so there's a lot of uh, educating and a lot of research and a lot of uh, staying in touch with not only the different DAO legal wrapper options, but how they're being treated, if at all. Um, in their jurisdictions and, and examples of, you know, on how they're being used. Um, so ton of stuff going on, uh, pretty exciting. And, and from there, you know, all, all kinds of traditional legal, uh, issues can spin off. Like, you know, is, is a signature from a DAO governance contract or, or a multi-sig is that a binding electronic signature in a given jurisdiction? You know, I, I think we as, Web three minded people would say yes, but never know. So yeah, I can imagine a lot of people would would say no as well. Right. And, exactly. Right. And then there's questions of is the DAO a person? So can the DAO be sued? Can the DAO sue over IP? I know that's something that's been discussed uh, lately in the in the space as well. And I think that it's just like I think the analogy you made before was the fire hose where it's like drinking out of a fire hose where it's difficult to get all of it. But if you pick certain strands, you know, you could make something work and you could begin to understand the ramifications of certain agreements and what laws are going to impact different paths to take. Um, so it's very interesting, lots of work to be done and lots of interesting discussions to be had for sure. Um, I do want to be respectful of your time. So we'll do, we'll wrap up with some rapid fire questions, Eric. Um, the first is just involving books or possibly podcasts or movies or anything that you find yourself recommending to people um, over and over again. So it could be some sort of book that you found very helpful or, or a course to learn solidity. Are there any sort of resources that you find yourself recommending people read or, or check out? I mean, I would probably just direct to the GitHub repo. I, like I'm, I'm pretty hands-on with those sort of things. Like I like to see examples and I like to see uh, that sort of thing. Non-pragmatically, I would say if you're out there and you have not yet read Dune, that movie is coming out in mid-October and I cannot wait. Please read that. 
<laughs> me too, man. I read them last year for the first time and two of the best books I've ever read in my life. I just read the first two. What an amazing series. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the preview, I've been, I, I don't know how many times I've watched the preview since it came out like over a year ago, I think, but it's, I, I can't wait. It looks great. The cast looks unbelievable. Uh, you know, Javier Bardem is Stilgar. Come on. Yeah. But yeah, it was, that would be my answer. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the original movie, the one I think they filmed in the 80s or yeah. the 90s. I, um, so I have been um, holding back from watching it because I heard some really mixed reviews on it and I just love the book so much and I, I have such high expectations for the current movie that I just... I just re- am reluctant <laughs> to watch the video. I, I, yeah, I wouldn't. If I, re- I watched it and I used it uh, as a nightlight. <laughs> you know, <it> became, <laughs> I'm going to fall asleep too. But because it's such a complicated plot with this technology that's so unique, it's difficult to make the movie in a way that doesn't look corny or, or strange. So judging by the trailer, it looks like the, the director was able to do that. And I know he's a pretty prominent director. His name's escaping me. but Yeah, Villeneuve. Um, yeah, uh, he's the rival in Blade Runner 2048, all the... Yeah, yeah, and that's almost the perfect setting, you know, those type of movies to, to lead into Dune, and I'm really excited for that. And it's funny you mention that, because when I spoke to Ross, he mentioned Dune as well. He said everyone should be Dune, um, and, and he's excited for the movie too, and I think it'll, it'll be a great one. Um, now, in terms of uh, another rapid-fire question, the one I like to ask was if you could go back to where you just graduated from law school or even just begun law school and you could give yourself some advice or um, possibly this is advice someone did give you and it was very valuable. What would you tell, tell yourself? Yes. Uh, this is a, a thing I like to tell any uh, current law students that are like, I want to do crypto law. Uh, any, any advice? My, my number one is take if, especially if it's not required, which it wasn't in my law school and isn't in a lot of law schools, take a legal drafting class if you can. And, uh, you know, they're, they're usually uh, split out into uh, types of drafting, whether it's uh, like litigation, uh, motions, that sort of thing, or, or uh, corporate um, flavored items, contracts, uh, but something that actually gets pen to paper in, to produce something that would be used in practice and it's just, it's really important to kind of get some practice and feedback on that early. And, you know, internships, of course, you'll get some of it to some extent, but um, I just really valued having that, um, that class where it was a bit of a break from theory and uh, you're, you're actually putting, again, putting pen to paper on, uh, figuratively speaking, on uh, something that will transition to um, the real world. I mean, I don't have all glowing things to say about law school or its uh, structure. I'm still not sure why it's three years long, but I don't know we need to go there, at least in the US, of course. Um, But yeah, I would say legal drafting class, if you can uh, do it, uh, well worth it. Agreed. So go take legal drafting classes, learn to code, from Solidity and check the resources in the show notes. I think those are a great three uh, steps for people to take. Now, before we conclude, is there any message you'd want to sort of send to the audience or comments or or questions you'd have for people? Uh, Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks again for having me. This is, uh, I think this will be a great uh, show. It's, there's not a lot, if any, really, um, of podcasts on this topic. So I'm looking forward to the, 
the other guests. And I would say to anyone who's listening and, and is like, I don't want, I don't know if I want to learn to code. I like, I, I'm interested. I don't want to learn to code. I don't know if I even really want to do this full time. Like if you're at all interested, like just give it a shot, you know, and just um, reach out. I think you'll be, as you've mentioned, Jacob, I think you'd be really surprised at how responsive people are and how welcoming people are. And, and there's just like a kinship there really is to this, this um, sort of open to everyone sector. Um, and I, I like, I really, really urge you to uh, um, just reach out and, and see, see what happens. Um, stay open to new possibilities and um, good, good things can, can happen when you're, when you're open to them. Jump in the deep end and just start swimming. And I think, um, that's definitely a great mentality to have. And that's what I'm doing with this podcast is saying, look, I've never done a podcast before, but this is a space I'm passionate about, very interested in. And it's a good excuse for me to talk with people like you about these topics in a more, not that it's a formal setting that's important, but a way where we can structure it so we don't get off topic. And I probably could have talked to you about Dune for the next half an hour. Maybe <laughs> Separate right? podcast so, for that. Yeah, I'll, exactly. I'll co-host with you. <laughs> that'll be part two for sure we'll, we'll talk to you another time but uh, thank you so much eric i know how busy you are and, and how much you have on your plate so i really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me um i hope people and i, I know people will get a lot of value out of this podcast and i'm looking forward to seeing what you build with uh, api3 thank you thank you again this was fun